It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com covered. Welcome to our podcast, Life After the Letters. I'm Amelie. And I'm Suba. We're friends that met whilst working our first shifts as junior doctors. And we're here to talk about the stories and challenges that we face every day. Today I have the pleasure of introducing Dr Robin Fawcett. She's a GP, a bibliophile, a mother of two adorable boys, an American who skipped across the pond, lover of nature and a breast cancer survivor. She has an inspiring Instagram account where she shares her life, gems of wisdom on peaceful living, raising children and life after cancer. I first saw Robin's TED talk on the importance of preventative medicine and on the real pressures on the NHS. It's not always about doctors absconding to Australia or New Zealand. So Robin is here with us today to talk about her journey through medicine and her experience of healthcare and illness, both as a doctor and as a patient. Hi Robin. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on today. We've all been like chatting away for the last 10 15 minutes and having a blast. So it's good to finally get on the air and record the gems. Absolutely. We almost could have recorded an episode before yeah. we even sat down here. And Robin, thankfully, well, Robin's been here for about over an hour already. I know. So thank you so much for being so kind. When I came, when I first came into the wing this morning, I was like, hi, Robin, sorry for making you wait. She said, oh, I haven't been waiting very long at all, but I could see you when you signed in. And it was literally <laughs> about 25 minutes prior. And I was like, oh my gosh, we are terrible. She's going to hate us. So thank- And I was out of breath as well. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my here. pleasure. I'm, I'm always happy to have an opportunity to sit with a cup of tea and yeah. my book. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you reading at the moment? It looks really interesting. So I'm reading a book called A General Theory of Love. Mm-hmm. And dum, dum, dum. I know, and it sounds really fluffy. <laughs> and it was a gift from a friend years ago. And I have to confess, I hadn't read it until now because I thought it was super fluffy. <laughs> and then something made me pull it out. And it's written by three psychiatrists so Dr. Lewis, Dr. Amini, and Dr. Lannan in mm. San Francisco. Mm. And it's really an analysis of what science can tell us and can't tell us about our emotions yeah. and the heart. Mm-hmm. So they talk about love, but it's really about our emotional selves. Mm. And again, that kind of division between science and our heart and our emotional Absolutely. selves. And it's just, it's been, it's just beautifully written. Yeah. And I'm loving it. I honestly think like psychiatrists have some of the best grips on that side of human nature. Cause it's something they see in their practice. I think something that's drawn them into that in the first place and I feel like all my experiences of incredible psychiatrists have been like, you guys have like another window into the human experience. And I want to look through that window too. Yes. Like I almost ended up doing psychiatry. It was one of my initial like specialties that I had. Assume I, it's had so many I know, specialties. But generally, <laughs> genuinely psychiatry and yeah. I did a psychology BSc and it was always something that I've loved and found so interesting. Because mm. really, and it sounds... I think the, the core of it is actually a bit egotistical. You really want to know yourself. You want to understand yourself. Mm. Um, but you can't really do that because it's so hard to look at yourself in a very real way. Yes. So you want to kind of look at other people in this almost... Well, it's not really voyeuristic, but it's like, maybe if I understand you and your emotions and your thoughts, then maybe I can understand myself. Yeah. So that's kind of what we're all trying to do. Yes. Um, psychiatrists are dope, basically. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to get at. They're really cool. How did you find yourself going into... GP or family medicine, mm. or what was your, even your journey in the first place? Yeah, let's so talk about how did you end up here, and what took you into medicine, 
and your specialty? Well, first, I was nodding the whole time you said that you've had all these different ideas about what specialty. I think that's how I ended up in general practice as a family doctor, is I mm-hmm. couldn't actually make a decision. <laughs> and so this was the, the best specialty that allowed me to still see everything. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... It's actually funny you introduced me as a bibliophile. I think my main reason for becoming a doctor in the first place was really literature. Yeah. I don't have any medics in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm black sheep for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And but a successful black sheep. Quite like, <laughs> yeah. The kind of black sheep that your family is very <laughs> yeah. proud to welcome to the fold. <laughs> and yet confused by. Yeah. Um, and I think my the, the, the sort of influences for me were... Mm-hmm doctors that I read about in books and a lot of a lot of old literature and so I think again mm-hmm. that family doctor model of the kind of the village doctor who yeah. Yeah. knows everybody in the village and knows their story knows the whole family dynamic yeah um and <laughs> the gossip of the yeah, village exactly yeah, there was the some Agatha of Christie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely some Agatha Christie um in there <laughs> as well not, not highbrow literature necessarily, <laughs> but I always say, you know, Dr. Beverly Crusher from Star Trek, the next generation, played a role, for sure, TV that's doctors. Good, good. Yeah. Um, but I think it was this idea of being mm. a little bit of a detective. Absolutely. Yeah. And to your point about sort of, I think it's really a fascination with the human experience mm. and wanting to bear witness to that and mm. play a role in, and being a presence for people mm-hmm. um, as they're walking through a path of illness and yeah. healing. Yeah, and then you you were telling us so you're obviously American as I was mentioning, and I've said it so many times. I'm like obsessed by everything American. <laughs> yeah, can you talk to us about your journey from well, literally across the world, um, and how you came to be settled over here? Yeah, so Again. this this yes, exactly. So this time around, um, it's been almost nine years okay. of living in the UK, but I lived here as a child. So we were an expat American family mm-hmm. um, in sort of the home counties just outside London in mm-hmm. South Buckinghamshire. Mm-hmm. Um, my father's job transferred us over here in 1985. <laughs> yeah. And it was supposed to be for one year, which became two. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the school systems are quite different. Very. And yeah. especially for my older brother, who was 11 at the time, um, my parents chose an American school mm-hmm. for us. Because, again, we thought it was temporary mm-hmm. and that we'd need to transition back. Yeah. And then as the years went on, it became harder and harder to make that shift. Yeah. Um, and so we just stayed in the U.S. system. And then at 18, moved back to the U.S. for university. Yeah. yeah. So, and in the States, medical training is quite different. Mm-hmm. So I did... So you applied for... So let's slow down a little bit. Yeah. So you applied, did you have majors and minors that you were choosing at the time? Or were you like always, oh, I'm going to be pre-med, go into medicine, or how did it work? I thought I, I thought I would be pre-med. I knew that I would study something science-y. Okay. Um, I actually also, this is less known and a little embarrassing perhaps, but I, I really wanted to be an astronaut. Oh, did you? That's so, not embarrassing. That's so cool. No, like for real wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> not when I was nine, but yeah. when I was, you know, seven. Like an adult. Yeah. Um, so that is a little embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. You don't find many 17-year-olds who are quite serious about wanting to be an no, astronaut. No, you don't. That's cool, though. But yeah. there's, oh, there's always physicians in space. Yes. So that's, okay. that's also something that's not well known, but yeah. there's, especially now, it's they're not fighter pilots mm-hmm. anymore, generally. Yeah. They're scientists yeah. and researchers. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so I, uh, so in the U.S. you apply not for a major, mm-hmm. you just apply to university. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so I decided, I, I was pretty sure I wanted to study biology. Yeah. Um, and then it's usually in your second year that you have to declare a major. Okay. And so you select yeah. the courses that are going to allow you to fulfill the requirements for that degree. Yeah. yeah. But there's always a lot of other stuff. Absolutely. Was there anything surprising that you picked up during the time when you were at university that has really informed what, how you think now? I did um I did a religions of Asia course mm. and I think that first opened my eyes to a very different way of looking at I guess the human experience mm. and what life is all about and a search for meaning mm. that was so unfamiliar to oh, wow. mm. you know someone who is of <laughs> Scottish and German ancestry of <laughs> Protestants you know yeah, the, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. so it was really outside of our family experience yeah but really profound and yeah. You know, it was an introductory course, so it was nothing at a particularly deep level, but mm-hmm. it was enough to get me thinking, yeah. and I think to get me asking questions about the things that I took for granted yeah. in my everyday life, and, and frankly, a lot of the dominant culture in the United States. Mm. And so I, I thought I would do medicine, uh-huh. and um, part of my journey 
really involves my father who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer mm. just before I graduated from school. Mm. So throughout my first year at university, mm. he was being treated at the hospital attached to my university. Oh, and wow. so my parents had moved from the UK back to the US to okay. be close to my brother and me. Mm. And were you living in the same state at the time? In the same area at the time? Yes, my parents were about half an hour from the university. Okay. And, and they had done that specifically to Exactly. I was in my first year, and my brother was in his final year at the same university. Mm-hmm. Me and my brother also went to the same university. Which is funny, because yeah. I don't know about you and your brother, but mine, <laughs> we are so different. I mean, we are chalk yeah. and cheese. <laughs> and my brother is a computer scientist. <laughs> and a real introvert. Yeah. yeah. Other than the fact that we both love books. And history. That is pretty much <laughs> so. We hardly ever crossed paths, and it was a pretty big university. But it was okay. amazing to have the whole family together through what was, you know, a pretty awful year. Yeah, absolutely. But what a gift that I could, in between classes, mm-hmm. I could pop in if my dad was getting a treatment. Yeah. And see my parents, and they could come around, and I could go home for weekends and do laundry, and yeah. oh yeah, all of that kind of yeah. thing. So I did all my pre med courses because of course so we do as undergrads some of the things you do in your first couple of years of med school here so all of the chemistry and the biology Mm -hmm. and the physics and all of that yeah I was working through as an undergrad yeah and then when it came to actually apply Mm -hmm. I had second thoughts and I thought am I actually on some weird mission to heal my father who had died Mm -hmm. at the end of my first year Mm -hmm. and I thought hang on am I going into this for all the wrong reasons Mm -hmm. and I had done some shadowing um, Mm -hmm. of junior doctors Mm -hmm locally and at my university and most of them frankly turned to me and said don't do it which is such a phenomenon it's such a phenomenon I'm sure it's true here too they're all like go do something else and this was 1999 2000 and so you know the economy was booming this is before the dot-com bubble burst yeah Yeah. and everyone was growth and everyone I knew had you know nine job offers coming out of university for like fabulous salaries amazing companies doing exciting things and so the junior doctors were all sort of looking at each other and being like what are we doing we made the wrong choice and so the message I got was don't do it don't do it and I I thought, hang on, am I actually sure about why I want to do this? Yeah. And so I put all of my medical stuff on a shelf and went to work for a software company. Oh, did you? No, you did. I did. I did, I did um, marketing for a software company for a year. <laughs> wow. And um, hated it. Okay. Which okay. is what I thought. I always I always knew that I didn't want to work in an office. Yeah. yeah. And there I was working in an office. And it was amazing in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. I, I learned a ton. I met some amazing mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Austin, Texas is just the coolest city in yeah. the world. Yeah. It was a great place to be. Yeah. But I, I realized pretty quickly that this was not going to be. Not for you. Yeah. And that dichotomy of like software marketing and medicine, what did it make you think about? Okay, this is why I choose medicine now. I think it was a concept of of service. I think I didn't feel like I was doing anything mm-hmm. to make the world a better place, which mm-hmm. sounds awful. And I'm not trying to diss people no, like no, my no, brother no. who work in software, yeah. but it just for me it didn't light me up. And again, having to come in and sit at a desk in an office environment. Mm. And, you know, write press releases. I mean, it was just awful yeah. for me. Yeah. It just and wasn't yeah, my thing. Like you say, you know, even when it comes to service, there's different levels of what it means to, yes. to do in something service. in service. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it, obviously you wanted to be more frontline service. No, yes. like that's the kind of vibe I was getting. It wasn't, it wasn't like the juicy good stuff that, you know, kind of fired me up inside. Yeah. And I think also it's that... You, have, you know, it was a job that paid really well, especially mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you think, oh gosh, you know, you've got to find these things out. Am I a lifestyle person who wants like a fancy car and a really mm-hmm. good salary uh-huh. and punch the clock at work so that I can yeah. go travel and do whatever? Yeah. And mm-hmm. that is the right thing or, or be of service in other ways outside of my job. Absolutely. There's many ways of doing this. But for mm-hmm. me, I realized actually that wasn't, yeah, that wasn't the path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was something I needed to tick. And I think I saw that. So to fast forward, I then did a year of genetic research, thinking, well, maybe research is the way forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would love to see your CV. This is I'm literally laughing. What hasn't she done? Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was just incredibly dull for me. Again, it was, mm-hmm. and, and, yeah. you know, it, it, the office was in a basement. It didn't have windows. And anyone yeah. who's done oh, medical gosh. research knows yeah, that like, you're constantly fighting for grant money. Yeah. And that research is, I mean, it's so important, mm-hmm. but it is such a slog. And you it's have such to a keep slog, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, you yeah, have yeah. to keep at it, and you just, you know, and I was enrolling yeah. families in a genetic research study, mm-hmm. kind of interesting in hindsight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interviewing families and mm-hmm. getting, you know, painting the family tree out and painstaking detail. Yes. So important. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, 
and it's not just not, but not for, really. not for everyone, <laughs> not, not for, for everyone. everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so then I, I traveled in Southeast Asia for a while. I did a year of the kind of backpacker in Southeast yeah. Asia while I was figuring out what was coming next. Yeah. And it was actually on the back of a moped in Phnom Penh. <laughs> that I, I'm literally so, seeing this in such a visual way. Like you go from the basement, now you're on a scooter, yeah. and like, you know, it's just amazing. And, and Phnom Penh is this amazing city, which yeah. obviously has, you know, a horrific history mm. um, of the Khmer Rouge. And it's so, mm. you know, it the, the people who have survived it are mm. still very much alive. And, and, and so it's the first time I was exposed to, to sort of the horrors of history mm. that are so fresh and so recent yeah, and absolutely. so still alive in the everyday experience of the people yeah. who live in that city and exposed to some of the, the NGOs who were there. And I thought, well, this is much more my kind of thing. Yeah. And it was on the back of that moped. I was like, maybe yeah. I should just go to medical school. <laughs> <laughs> back to square one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but by the time I did go to medical school, I realized I'd, I'd, I'd sort of had all those wobbles and worked yeah. out of that. And yeah. so I was sure that this was yeah. what I wanted to do. And I yeah. saw my classmates, as I'm sure you have, yeah. go through that existential, hang on a second, is this for me? Yeah. Yeah. And I felt so lucky that I'd gone through that mm-hmm. before, before I was yeah. doing the crazy hours and being Absolutely. shouted at by senior doctors and going through all of that stuff yeah. that you go through. Yeah. I, at least underneath it all, knew I was in the right place. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you said that, I was thinking, even though by joking you said that you've gone back to square one, actually you're coming from a different perspective and it's almost like when you see the mature medics at in the hospital compared to us like the 18 year olds. Yeah, people who started at 18 yeah, and yeah. Have finished at like what 23, 24. Yeah. It's just a completely different life experience that they've been yes. exposed to. Yeah. And I think that's also when you start reading a little bit more, your mm-hmm. mind starts getting opened up. You mm-hmm. start thinking about the ways that you want to approach medicine and why you want to come into it. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really cool to think about more how can I be a clinician? How yeah. do I show up in this space? Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's one difference I've seen, you know, having grown up in the NHS really mm, as yeah. a child. Yeah. And so I'm very familiar with the UK system and then now being back in it yeah. um, as a doctor, you know, I, I'm, I'm constantly asked about differences between the US and the UK. And mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. one of the, the good things and the bad things is that you're in school for a lot longer in the mm-hmm. US. Mm-hmm. But by the time you're actually practicing, by the time you've got the title of doctor, you're mm-hmm. older. Yeah. And you have just a little bit more life experience yeah. under your belt. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an asset. Both just, by of, yeah, <laughs> just by virtue of time. Yeah, just by virtue of time. I think that provides a little bit more kind of mm-hmm. emotional maturity and resilience. Yeah. But I think it also means you bring something a bit richer to your patients. Can yeah. I ask you a question? And yeah. it's not directly on the differences between America and the UK, but more so... Um, in your TED talk, you talk about like the narratives that we yes. find in the UK media about the NHS, mm-hmm. the shortage of, of doctors when it really should be the increasing like aging population and the sicker patients. Mm-hmm. What's the narrative like in the US? Would you be about you, healthcare about in healthcare? general? Yeah, is that a big question? <sighs> yes, and okay. I think it's it's interesting because it is a very different narrative. Um, I think the narrative in the U.S. tends to be one that's very focused on what is the ideal medical model. Mm-hmm. I think the U.S. Yeah. is still tied up in knots over should we have single-payer system, mm-hmm. which is the, the big political hot yeah. potato at the moment, but um, also you have Medicare and Medicaid and um, how much should nurses be doing, how much should advanced practice nurses mm-hmm. be doing, physician assistants, the doctors. Um, in the U.S., there's also... Lots of people call themselves doctors, so that's the difference. Mm. That chiropractors yeah. are referred yeah. to as doctors, and even yeah. now, sometimes physios are often yeah. PhDs now. And yeah. so there's this whole. I think it's more of an identity crisis that you mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, the, it's the spiraling cost of healthcare in the U.S., yeah. which you know they pay. It, the amount spent on healthcare per person is more than twice in the U.S. Mm-hmm. than what it is here. Yeah. And there's this sense that it's spiraling out of control. Mm-hmm. But what could be done about it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it almost seems so segmented that it's difficult to get a complete hold of it. Yes. So I would even be interested, I feel like the UK, in the UK people have such a difficult understanding of what the NHS and what healthcare really mm-hmm. means. So I wonder, in the U.S., when you've got such a fragmented system, how do you even think about what healthcare can mean mm-hmm. for you? Because you've never had like a like a taxpayer system. Right. So mm-hmm. does that even feel real to people? No, and that's one of the challenges is that it's divided up into people who have health insurance and people mm-hmm. who don't. Yes. So there are safety nets in place. Yeah. Um, if you're in a certain income bracket, you're mm-hmm. eligible for 
for Medicaid, which mm-hmm. is sort of an mm-hmm. assisted healthcare yeah. program yeah. if you're over a certain age. But for everybody else in the middle, it's either you have insurance or you don't. Yeah. And the problem is that people who have insurance don't see where the costs are actually... Nobody sees where the money is spent. Oh, of yeah. course. So there's this illusion yeah. that the cost comes... It's hard to describe, but basically the people who have insurance are paying for the people who don't. Yes, yeah. And so, the the, the yeah. and the actual cost of say an MRI, mm-hmm. if you have a certain insurance plan, you might spend fifteen dollars mm-hmm. as your copay for that MRI yeah. scan. But no one actually understands how much that Absolutely. costs, yes. where yes. that, where the money goes, and how it's all funded mm-hmm. is yeah. so opaque. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Byzantine that I think very few people have an actual grasp on the economics yeah. of, of the health system in the U.S. And that's part of the challenge is, mm-hmm. especially when politicians get involved, it's all politicized yeah. and it's hard to have an honest conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you studied history at some point in time? I did. Okay. So how does this slot into like, how does your slot timeline? In? So I went, to a, I went to a really unusual medical school. I feel like you should be like 70 year old, like 70 yeah. years old. <laughs> how many so years have What do you mean? I'm trying to do all I feel it some days. My, I went, I, I, you know, again, these things that are so serendipitous. I went to pretty much the only medical school in the United States, as far mm-hmm. as I know, that has this curriculum where, so you do a lot of your sort of pre-medical courses mm-hmm. in undergrad. And this was Duke. Yeah, Duke okay. University in North Carolina. And most medical schools, you spend your first two years doing mostly classroom things. So you're mm-hmm. learning pathology and mm-hmm. pharmacology and anatomy. anatomy and all of that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And then your last two years are on the wards, mm-hmm. doing very hands-on. And you're almost like an F1. Yeah. Yeah. You're given real yeah. responsibilities. Absolutely. You're putting things in yeah. the notes. You're, you're actually doing, yeah. you know, you're mm-hmm. the your last year, you're, you're carrying a belief and you're yeah. responding. Yeah. So you're a yeah, little bit like that. The between their final year it's medical really, students are so different. Yeah, it really yeah. is. Much more so than our system. Yes. Where yes. You are very babied until you are an F1. And, and then you you're thrown in a deep end. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So my medical school is different. They took the approach that actually most of what you learn in those first two years mm-hmm. is going to change. By the time you've graduated, it's going to change. Like our knowledge mm-hmm. is evolving so quickly. Yeah. That why spend two years having you memorize things that are going to be obsolete three years down the road? Mm-hmm. And they felt very strongly that you That's should... That's very radical. Of it is really, really quite progressive. controversial. And they said, well, actually, what we need to do is teach you how to be lifelong learners. Yep, yep. And how to... Oh, I, I know. Like I want to go back to your medical school <laughs> and to reattend. So your first year is then crammed Did, into 13 Can I ask months. you a question very yeah. quickly? Did people think that your med school was a bit, like, lax? Because of no, that. it was because the focus was on research. So most okay. people, Fine. so that instead of two years of classroom, you do thirteen months. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of taking all that content and drinking it through a fire hose. It's yeah. really intensive. <laughs> I love that visual. <laughs> it's like eight a.m. to five p.m. in lectures. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty grueling. Yeah. And then your second year is actually on the ward, so they get you out seeing patients faster. Okay. Yeah. And then your third year is a research year, okay. and that's what lots of people thought, oh, I don't know if I want to do, because most people do bench research. They do actual basic science medical yeah, research. Cool. Yeah. So there's a lot, and a lot of people go on to do PhD. It's a very yeah. research heavy. heavy. And okay. so people get, I think lots of people think, oh, maybe I don't want to do that. Yeah, that sounds yeah. scary. I mean, it's still, it's one of the universities people want to go to. Yeah. yeah. But I think it, it tends to self-select people who are more interested in academic medicine. Yeah, yeah because of like it. So I was the... I think it was the second person ever to do something really quite different with that third year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was the first to go abroad. So I decided instead of doing bench research, which uh-huh. I knew was not going to ring my bell. Thanks um, to your year in genetics. Thanks to my year in genetics. <laughs> I, I always thought, oh, I'll do something in public health research mm-hmm. or I'll do mm-hmm. something that's a bit more, you know, with humans. Mm-hmm. Um, but by then I was dating my husband who... We'd met at a wedding. He's English. Oh, and English. And, mm-hmm. and I really missed. I really missed the UK. Yeah. <laughs> I used to get well, kind of twitchy. So I was like, I was that brownie American that like unless I was getting on an airplane to Europe every once in a while, I yeah. just get sort of twitchy. Yeah. And I was very twitchy at that point after <laughs> two years of medical school. So I applied to study history of medicine, mm-hmm. and so I my air quotes research year was doing an MA in history of medicine oh, at UCL. Amazing. And that was at the Welcome, um, yeah, the Welcome yeah, Trust yeah, Center yeah, for History of Medicine, yeah, which has yeah. now sort of yes. been absorbed into UCL proper. Yeah. So, yeah, so I was very lucky. Are that you that an art I, student for a year? I know. I convinced yeah. my medical school that that counts as medical school. That is... I don't think anyone's that's done That's amazing. Yeah. I was going to say, that's, <laughs> that, that is probably, like, the achievement. Yeah. Yeah. So I did feel, I did feel rather smug. Um, Particularly with the Welcome Collection must have been incredible. Was, <laughs> so, I mean, I can highly recommend, 
if anyone can, mm -hmm. take a year out mm -hmm. and do something different. Mm -hmm. And yeah. even if it's tangentially related, but to be away from the kind of ivory towers of the medical world. Because mm -hmm. I went into that year quite sure... Because again, it's a bit like studying for your degree in the U.S. Mm -hmm. You don't know what kind of doctor you're going to be. But in the U.S., your junior doctor training is packaged. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit like going to study a course at university. You don't do random doctor jobs like you do here. Yeah. And so as you start getting to the end of medical school, everyone's thinking ahead to what do I want, what do I want to specialize in? Mm -hmm. So you make that decision in medical school. Yeah, close, yeah. Close. And so, you know, by then, you've done your whole, your first year on the wards, you've been exposed to the basics. Yeah. You're mm -hmm. thinking, what do I want to do? Mm -hmm. And so my, I initially was going to do something like most people do from my university, which is go into something quite sort of specialized and yeah. prestigious and mm -hmm. academic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's almost a culture of wanting to almost prove yourself as yes. well to your colleagues. And you're still, you know, since you've been in school, right? Yeah, that's you, what you want to get, you want to do the impressive, like the next best thing. Yeah. You, know, you get the good grades, you can go to the good university and you yeah. can study medicine. And you, so you're yeah. always trying to yeah. climb that ladder of doing the, achieving the most you can achieve. Mm -hmm. And I think... That year for me was an opportunity to step back and say, actually, yeah. why did I want to go to medical mm -hmm. school in the first place? Mm -hmm. You know, and so I was, because I was on the track to do sort of anesthesia and critical care mm -hmm. because I learned medical school. I was like, that of, is cool. That is cool. It is cool. <laughs> it is cool. And I'm a cool head in a crisis. That's one of the things you realize. And I'm that person yeah. who stays calm yes, in the room yeah. when, when someone is really unwell. And yeah. needs, so I thought that'll be me. Yeah. Yeah. And it was that year out that I thought, hang on, it's been about relationships. Like that's what's drawn me into this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And obviously when you're an anesthetist or an intensive care, most of the time yeah. your patients sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you do look after the family. A lot you of the do. Times. You do. It's in a super important role. Yeah. Um, but I realized I actually wanted to be part of the diagnosis, the kind of mystery of investigations. And I wanted to, I wanted to know what happened to people mm -hmm. over the long course. And again, that idea that I would never deliver a baby again or never oh, yeah. take, care yeah. of it, take care of a child. Or, you, you don't know, let I, go of any of I anything. I couldn't <laughs> let go of any of it. Yeah. But it, I had to step away from the pressures of a prestigious academic institution that wanted its graduates to do prestigious things in the world. Yes, yes. Yeah. That I had to step away. And when I came back, from that year and said I wanted to do family medicine I mean it was like crickets in the room people yeah. were just staring at me with blank faces like yeah. have you what lost just your mind happened? have you actually yeah. lost your mind <laughs> yeah and what I think is interesting when I, me and Super we talk a lot about the intercalations that we did mm -hmm. Super did psychology I did mm -hmm. ethics and law mm -hmm. and I think when to do such like arts focused things yeah. Yeah. can really shape your mind or the way that you yeah. now approach the world because as you said before you've gone through um, school, you've gone through university, everyone's pushing you towards prestigious things, you're quite good at just getting on with it. How do you think that changed your perspective um, going into the history of medicine? Was there anything that you think has like changed the way you now think about? Hugely. And I, you know, people will say, like, what's the most profound thing you learned in medical school? And I think, gosh, so much of it came from that, okay. from doing that MA. And I think it's looking through medicine, looking at medicine as a lens, and I know this is going to sound really sort of postmodern and arty, but mm -hmm. medicine itself is a construct. Mm -hmm. It is it is a conceptualization of health that we have invented mm -hmm. because it makes sense. Absolutely. And so, studying how that has evolved over history, and looking mm -hmm. how different civilizations and different cultures had their own constructs, mm -hmm. and looking at that not in a judgmental way, we're not looking to prove who's more right, yes, which is yeah. what we're constantly doing in medicine, right? Yeah. yeah. And we have to because we want to give our patients the best treatment. Yeah. But when you take off the hat of, I'm looking at this as a clinician, yeah. but look at it from a standpoint of almost almost like a sociologist. Almost like an anthropology kind yes. of perspective. Yeah. And say, gosh, well, this is just, this is our best attempt today, or one of the attempts today mm -hmm. of systematizing and understanding what's happening with health in the human body, mm -hmm. rather than looking at it as truth with a capital T. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is, a, it's a subtle change, yeah. but it changed everything, everything. Yeah. about how I practice yeah. mm -hmm. and understanding that we're really, this is a lens that we're looking at life through. Yeah. And it's that, that lens has changed over time, whether it was Ayurveda or mm -hmm. the kind of Greek system. And then mm -hmm. even some of the humorals, the medieval, stuff, the medieval stuff. <laughs> and each of those has its own lens and that mm -hmm. lens is evolving and we're polishing it and adjusting it yeah. as we go, but it's still a lens. It's not, we're not looking at the thing we're, we're looking at it through a lens. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how do we stop inserting ourselves as like the centre of the story oh. as doctors? I'm sure you see lots of your colleagues do that and actually you've had the privilege of going through these courses and being aware of your, your mm -hmm. own lens. How do you stop doing that? 
I think, well, and, and this is, I think, where we all agree, I think a lot of it is enriching your life and your awareness and being a learner outside of medicine itself. And mm-hmm. I think, yes, you have to keep up to date on medical literature and you have to read the <laughs> journals and like, do the <laughs> journal We're still doctors. We're still doctors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think you have to, you have to inform yourself and constantly be developing yeah. your understanding of the world outside of medicine. And so whether that's poetry, whether that's theology, yeah. philosophy, I think it's being widely read or widely informed mm-hmm. and, and exploring these ideas. And I think also coming back to what was it that drew you into medicine in the first place, mm-hmm. kind of your own personal development, I think, and yeah. being reflective about this and not in the way that, you know, reflection has become such a portfolio word. Yeah. And I think we've almost ruined reflection. It gives people actual traumatic Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah especially, the, especially the GPs. I feel I bad when they have to write oh. them so often. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But the actual meaning behind why we yes. are encouraged to do them is a positive yes, thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And me and Amelie used to always touch on how, actually, even when we initially started the podcast, it was such a reflective process for us. And we'd mm. always be talking about these things anyways. It just made sense to start. Yes. talking about it on a public forum and inviting people to join yeah. in. Yeah. And when you talk about it in a public forum, then you're forced to like confront what your predispositions are yes. um, and why you think the way you think. So you just want to be careful when yeah. you then see your patients in a private setting. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Um, so I feel like we have to come on to some other topics because yes. we're going to just be stuck on books and literature all day. forever, aren't we? Yes. Um, so kind of moving on to when you started practicing as a GP, professionally, you were embracing the medical healthcare system in the UK. What happened when you found yourself on the other side? This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com of that as a patient so most people assume that the u.s and the uk are actually are very different mm. in terms of how medicine is practiced and actually they're really not yeah and i think I mean, that's a whole other can of worms we could open up but the medical culture in the u.s and the uk is very similar mm. and this the standards of professionalism the ethics it makes sense right you yeah. know our, much of the u.s system both our judiciary and yeah. our medical system are directly imported from yeah. from great britain mm-hmm. And so what's been very interesting to me is seeing how much, how doctors practice, the way we interact with our patients, all of that is very, very similar. Mm-hmm. And the actual medicine we practice is very, very similar, Yeah, um, which is obviously good news um, <laughs> for someone trained in the U.S. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, the little system changes, that's really the change. But, you know, even that's not that different. The yeah. NHS could well be an insurance company in yeah. terms of yeah. how you yeah. interact with it and what you're allowed to do and not allowed yeah. to do yeah. is not even that different. Yeah. Um, and so I think the major change for me practicing was the time pressure. Mm. And that's been the hardest thing for me to adjust is the amount of time you have per appointment. Mm -hmm. Even in in the U S a 15 minute appointment is considered incredibly short. Wow. And so to slice that to 10 to 10 was a big shift. Yeah. And then obviously you accumulate that through the day. How many patient encounters you have is Mm -hmm. so, you know, 
having 20 patient encounters in a day is considered a really full load in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, and often here in general practice, it's, you know, 40 or you hear stories of 60 with that's phone calls and place. triaging. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, on the subject of burnout, I think that if you bring real presence to each interaction, mm-hmm. it's yeah. not the time you spend, but the individual people that you yeah. interact with that I think is a big source of GP burnout in this country. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds overwhelming to imagine yes. having 40 or 60 patient encounters where you're trying to give the care you want to give. Yes. That sounds overwhelming. But I think any, any, any doctor who's been a patient will relate to suddenly having yourself on the other side of, of, of the gown, of the table, of the couch, um, is a big shift. And I've had, you know, I've not been that for, you know, I had a cardiac arrhythmia that was ablated in my, um, when I was 31. So in my, with my twenties, I was in and out of A&E and I would be a self cardiologist. It's not like I'd never, never been a yeah. patient yeah. before. Yeah. And I had two babies and lost another pregnancy. So, you know, I've, I've had interactions with healthcare, yeah. Yeah. but when I went and I found a breast lump, um, I was sure it was benign. Mm-hmm. My GP was sure it was benign, but because my mom had had breast cancer, and with, she was twitchy. And mm-hmm. in the U.S., they start screening mammograms mm-hmm. are offered at forty, yeah. so it's ten years earlier. My mother was twitchy, mm-hmm. so I thought I'm going to go. I'll, I'll get referred. The <laughs> breast clinic was like, "No, we think this is benign, mm-hmm. but let's go ahead and do a screening mammogram." And sure enough, the lump was benign, okay. but there were calcifications on in the other breast that turned out to be oh, wow. DCIS, mm-hmm. um, ductal carcinoma in situ, stage zero. Mm-hmm. But it was a shock, especially as someone who in the kind of lifestyle medicine space mm. was so into, you know, note to self, don't go do a TEDx talk and talk about how preventable cancer is. <laughs> <laughs> Tempting fate. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Oh, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hashtag tempting fate. Um, uh, so it genuinely, it genuinely did come as a shock and there's no, so my mother had had genetic testing done when she had her breast cancer and her, mm. and nothing was found. Mm. My father's side, there's no breast or ovarian cancer. Mm. And so when a month later I received a diagnosis of a BRCA2 mutation, mm. that came as a complete shock. Must have Complete done. shock. And, you know, as, as a medic, first of all, I felt like a bit of a fool mm. for not having had any breast screening mm. until then, age mm. 40, mm. with a family history. Arguably, I could have gone earlier. And then to not know that there was mutation. a hereditary cancer yeah. syndrome, you know, I felt like a bit of a, a numpty. Mm. And so there was that, you know, there were so many layers of the, hang yeah. on a second. I was eating the kale. I was doing the yoga. Yeah. Yeah. You know, why me? I was meditating. I yeah. was doing the meditation. <laughs> yeah. And then also to, oh, by the way, there is a genetic mutation that I probably could have looked at the family tree. You know, there's the, the perfectionist medic, right? You sort yeah. of beat yourself up over. And then also to, I was surprised by the experience of being a cancer patient. Hmm. That was another love compared to being a cardiac patient or mm. being a pregnant woman. It's a whole different world. Isn't it really it? is. Entering like cancer. In what in what way? I think the. I think cancer has a whole mythology in our culture, and there's been some fabulous books written about this. But mm-hmm. it does have, considering that most people with a cancer diagnosis survive it now, mm-hmm. it still has this kind of association with the Grim Reaper. I mean, it is mm-hmm. just the specter of death and. In my own family, you know, my father obviously died mm-hmm. of cancer yeah. from, you know, arguably one of the scariest ones. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But we still go instantly into that kind of panic mode with all that cancer is and means and signifies for mm-hmm. us in society. But then also the, the process of getting diagnosed is pretty unpleasant. So mm-hmm. I had a really bad experience with my breast biopsy, mm-hmm. um, which I hadn't been prepared for because I, you know, and I have a handful of friends who've had breast cancer and none of them had ever said anything bad mm-hmm. about their breast biopsy. And I, I had a bad experience. It was difficult for them to get the samples. I was in this contorted position, you know, stuck and basically you're having like a constant mammogram. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was two and a half hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Of being in a really uncomfortable position. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, with your tit in the clamp. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And it was, it was traumatic. Yeah. And it, it wasn't until afterwards that I thought, gosh, that really was traumatic. Yeah. And the clinic had run late. And you know, we all know how it is, right? Yeah. The clinic was supposed to be shut. So the lights are switched off. The assistants are all just dying to get home. Yeah. And... You know, it was a little bit of a botched job of sort of patching me up and sending me on my way. And I'm being, I was left crying alone in a dark room at one point, and I thought, yeah. this is intense. Yeah. 
Yeah. I was on my own because it was, you know, And you didn't afternoon. even expect it was going to be and I was, this much of a hassle. So you thought, oh, pop in, pop out. And I thought it was going to be benign. I really did. Because the mammogram was not even that impressive. Mm-hmm. I really thought it was going to be benign. And yeah. so thinking to myself, gosh, I'm going through all of this for something that's probably going to be nothing. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I think for many breast cancer patients, there's decisions to be made. And it's, you know, in my case, they were... Is it going to be a lumpectomy, a wide local excision? Is it going to yeah. be a mastectomy before we had the genetics back? Mm-hmm. There's that whole can of worms. And I think, you know, again, this is where there's the science of breast cancer treatment and then there's the human experience. Mm-hmm. And for any woman, woman, you know, breasts are highly individual. And you're really, it, it opens up this, this yeah. whole world of femininity, of mm-hmm. your relationship with your body, mm-hmm. what do breasts mean to you. Mm-hmm. There's obviously society has so much to say about mm. women's bodies mm. and were you know I've never been more aware of how many boobs are on billboards you know? yeah, yeah. I mean breasts are everywhere mm. they're and it's you know it's on television it's you know my Instagram ads it's really yeah like the way you mentioned it I'm like how many boobs have I already seen this morning I've got like a highlight section of my stories of all the inappropriate I think because I've talked on social media about breast cancer it's like the word breast and Instagram's like oh she's interested in bras and so I have these Bombarded with bralettes. I have to pay for this. Like, like giant close-ups of like a boob. Like, like how often can you report these before like, oh, they'll leave you alone? Exactly. So I got I got um, hiking boot ads the other day, and I'm like, they're learning. Yeah, <laughs> they're learning. I like the nature. Yeah, I was like, give me the hiking boots. So, and then I think for, and I don't know whether this would have been different in the U.S. I mean, I went along with some of my mother's appointments when mm-hmm. she was going through breast cancer treatment, but there's not much. In my experience, there was no conversation started by any of my, and I interviewed a lot of surgeons. I always tell my, my GP, in general practice, I tell my patients, got to be a bit American about this, mm-hmm. that, you know, you can get a second opinion in the NHS. Yeah. You actually have choice over which hospital you go to. Mm-hmm. You can shop around. Yeah. And for most people with breast cancer, it's not an emergency. Mm-hmm. And I know there's this urgency once you know it's in there. You're desperate to get it out. And for your own sort of state of what's happening, what's the plan, what's next. Yes, we're desperate to get on with it, but actually making sure you feel 100% comfortable Mm -hmm. with your surgeon, with the team Mm -hmm. that you're getting care from. So because I had a bad experience as my biopsy, I shopped around. And so that added to the time that I was waiting. And then Christmas rolled around. And for for DCIS, I mean, it's stage zero. Nobody Mm -hmm. ever dies from DCIS. Mm -hmm. And so none of the surgeons were in a hurry. And everyone Mm -hmm. said, wait till after Christmas to have your surgery. And did you feel comfortable waiting till after Christmas? No, I did get a little bit too American at first. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, if I was in the States, this would be all behind me Mm -hmm. in like a minute and a half Mm -hmm. uh, because they don't have the wait times that we have here. (laughs) Everything just moves faster. But in hindsight, I'm really, really glad that I had that time Mm -hmm. to reflect. You're processing so much. Like, not only have you gone from being like, I've got a benign breast lump to, oh, now I haven't, and oh, there's this gene mutation, to, okay, and what does this mean for what the treatment's going to be? What's the the best choice? And then also you're coming from that, not only as, um, you know, a a person who's experiencing this in your life, but also as someone who's got medical background. So you're like, well should I be reading things should I be you know you're going to you're going to be like let me check what's you know oh yeah what's like reading said. all the books and like yeah on all the you know social media is a bit of a minefield mm-hmm. when it yeah. comes to to cancer and I found myself actually not wanting to consume okay. much of anything because there's mm-hmm. so much garbage yeah. so much garbage and that's mm-hmm. become something I'm really passionate about now even in lifestyle medicine there's an awful lot of really misleading um it, yeah yeah. really hurtful information and yeah. I think the more and I'm aware of this too the more we bang on about how preventable cancer is once you've had that diagnosis there's a lot of guilt and blame that comes with it and you think okay what did I do I must have done something wrong if this yeah. is preventable someone's jumping up to tell you that you should have had more turmeric and you should have yeah 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 exactly you know, had more greens and eaten less McDonald's or something exactly exactly yeah. but in, in all of my interactions with surgeons mm-hmm. and so I ultimately spoke to four surgeons before I actually proceeded with the double mastectomy I had um, in January of this year not one asked me kind of what my experience has been and sort of what how I was feeling emotionally mm-hmm. and I thought that would that that did shock me mm-hmm. because I thought that we had sort of gotten to a place where we understood and again maybe that's just not the focus of the surgeon I'm not expecting them to give me yeah. like a counseling session mm-hmm. yeah. but especially when you're talking about 
surgical options for breast cancer. That has to be a piece of it. Yeah, I'm quite surprised to hear that. that. I was going to say, that surprises me slightly. Because I think of all the fields, I was under the impression, and from my experience, that the cancer fields are often better at acknowledging the holistic nature of how we need to approach those issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. and how, you know, you have, you know, the Macmillan nurses that come in and are giving you practical advice on Mm -hmm. money and how you're going to finance yourself and what you're going to do about work. And And then I suppose the lens that you come from as a Macmillan nurse must be very different from a surgical training kind of standpoint. Mm -hmm. And again, I was lucky that I didn't need chemotherapy and I didn't need radiotherapy. And so I was, you know, I think with DCIS, you're in a slightly different bucket. Mm. And I remember turning to the breast nurse right after I got the diagnosis and they sort of, and again, you, you know, the surgeon has done her bit. The yeah. surgeon who gave me my diagnosis had done her bit. And then I was like whisked away yeah, to the nurse. Like, now we're going to talk about her. We're going to start crying. Yeah. Like, off yeah. you go to the side room yeah. with the nurse. Yeah. And I remember turning to her and saying, so do I actually have breast cancer? Like, are we calling DCIS yeah. cancer these yeah. days? Because it's quite controversial. Yeah. And I think yeah. easily in five years, we're going to be saying, actually, I didn't have breast cancer. Because DCIS is, is it pre-cancer or cancer? Mm-hmm. But I actually turned to her and sort of said, do I have breast cancer? Like, yeah. do you call, can you break what, it down? What are you kids calling it these days? Yeah. You know, I feel out of touch. Um, and she, you know, because it is, I think it's a different thing. They don't sort of pile on McMillan nurses, and, and certainly they didn't yeah. for me. But then you're kind of in a sort of twilight zone where you're like, well, yes. I'm having all these things happen. Yes. And, um, I'm having a double mastectomy, but there's no one... There's no social support or psychological yeah. support, anyone checking in yeah. on... So the experience of being a doctor in that, scenario did you feel like that gave you more power or did it kind of like take a give you less power in the sense that you felt a bit silly asking these questions I definitely felt like I had more power okay. and I think that was in the back of my mind I could think gosh if I'm finding this hard mm. what does the average woman who doesn't have a medical background mm. and um and one of the things that I've been you know I've shared on social media is I did not have breast reconstruction and that was I think again part of why I mean, with medics, give us a chance to talk about science or talk about the heart, and what are we going to do? Of course, we're going to talk about science and mm. talk about the kind of physical body. And mm. for me, the, the, the re- one of the reasons I sort of got different opinions was because reconstruction was going to be a challenge for me. And so the surgeon would much rather talk about technical aspects yeah. of breast surgery rather than talk about like the meaning of this yeah. and actually the surgeon I had I mean he's brilliant it sounds like I'm being critical of him he no, was no, brilliant and he, did, he did more than he did more than any of the others mm-hmm. and sort of at the outset acknowledging that mastectomy is not just a physical change process yeah. Yeah. Um, but he never once suggested that I not have breast reconstruction mm-hmm. and so we were going round and round the houses about you know I'm, I'm too slim to have autologous reconstruction mm-hmm. where they you know like the Diet procedure yeah. where they can use your own flesh to, to build a breast. And so he sent me off, though, for another... To see if mm-hmm. even the wizard plastic surgeon could, could like, scrape some flesh from <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> like he was... It, and no, the answer was no. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it was... For someone who is very tall, like me, mm-hmm. implant reconstruction is not as straightforward mm-hmm. as I think the media makes it seem. Mm-hmm. And... And so he wanted to be very real about kind of what the risk, the very, you know, the, the operative risk was going to be like the 30% range, which is very high. Mm. 30% is massive. It's yeah. massive. Yeah. It's massive. Yeah. And that's for, you know, infection, yeah. tissue necrosis, yeah. need for reoperation. Yeah. You know, my, yeah. my pectoral muscles would have to be cut. You know, there was all these yeah. sort of, it was going to be full on. Yeah. And I, and I, it wasn't until I said, well, what if I just don't have reconstruction? Mm-hmm. And he, there was this amazing moment where he, his breast nurse was in the room and he looked at her and they exchanged this look. Mm-hmm. And it was like relief. I wish I was in that room. Right? Yeah, it was an amazing moment where he said he said they locked eyes and exchanged this expression. He said, "Yes, we've been trying to decide whether we should suggest this to you." And they, they clearly yeah. just weren't comfortable. Yeah, having that conversation. That. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh, like this is so clearly the right thing for me to do. Yeah, and they didn't feel. Like it was a conversation they could have, and I thought because we because we haven't but talked we don't about think it about yet, that, do we? Yeah. yeah, and because because we hadn't ever had a conversation about body image, yeah, that they didn't they couldn't, feel they couldn't, and they couldn't gauge where where what that meant to you and where you were coming from, which is the biggest part of ever saying something like that to somebody. You can't just come in and say 
have you thought about not having a reconstructive surgery to someone you've never had that conversation exactly because and it, because I'd had so many consultations at this point with them mm-hmm. I think they felt like it was too late to say well hang on yeah. let's take a step back and like yeah. what do breasts mean to you yeah. like, what do you feel about your body and what's important to you what are your private <laughs> like all of these really yeah. basic questions yeah 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 and so yeah so I felt very fortunate mm-hmm. that I knowing my options as well as I did and knowing what the very real operative risks yeah. meant and what that actually looked like because I'd seen we've all yeah. seen people having surgical complications uh-huh. and I knew that that number was too high for mm-hmm. me and also yeah. I think a big part of I think something we should touch on is that you talking about how being a doctor felt like you felt like you had more power because of that yes. in that relationship is important because often if someone is coming from a background where they feel like you're coming to an expert to give you the advice and to give you the recommendations then you may not think to bring something up if they've not brought it up because you're thinking, well, you're the expert, you're going to give me the advice and you're going to give me the recommendations. So the fact that you were coming from an environment where you're saying, well, I'm going to shop around actually and find a person that I'm the best fit with, fine, okay, I feel comfortable in my relationship with you now to say, can can we think about this? Even if they haven't. And that's crucial. I think there is still, especially here in the UK, very much a culture of do what the doctor says. And I think that's really unhelpful. It's unhelpful for doctors. It's difficult to work with that if you're the doctor and you're trying to do some shared decision-making with your patient. If they just want you to tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. But then as a patient, it means it's a lot harder to advocate for yourself. And one of the reasons that I really, that I actually chose my surgeon in the end is because, again, I felt empowered to, like, look him up on bed. And sort of, I knew that he had a PhD, so I was like, <laughs> Let's read what he does and yes. research it. And he'd written a paper about medical errors. Oh. And he'd written a case report that was published of something going wrong in um, a wide local excision mm-hmm. where a woman who'd been diagnosed with breast cancer was going in to have a lumpectomy. And everyone had explained to her multiple times that bef- right before she had her surgery, they were going to put a wire in mm-hmm. to identify the mm-hmm. spot. And so she knew this. It was explained many times. And... Somehow with the checklist, it failed, and she went straight from pre-op into theater without having the wire placed and was put under. And it wasn't until the surgeon came in and said, hang on, where's the wire, that they discovered the mistake. And so he'd written this fabulous paper about how she knew that she was supposed to have that wire, and she didn't say, hang on, folks, why haven't I got the wire? Where's my wire? And so that's what he was interested in, is how is this broken down, both Mm -hmm. on our end, but also how would we put a patient in a situation where she didn't feel like she could question her care? Mm -hmm. Oh, I love him. I, I know. Yeah. That's why I was like, that's Do you know my guy. guy. That is I'm going to start reading people's papers now. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't even care so. about the, you know, the I want great care.com reviews. Yeah. No. I want to know that you really deeply yeah. understand what it means to yeah. n- not stand up for yourself. Like, yeah. Oh, I want to make sure that he's taken all the breast cells he can take, and I want pretty scars. Yeah. And, yeah, and I want someone who's thinking, like about, thinking about yeah. some of this stuff. Yeah. yeah. What a dope guy. Yeah. So... I know that you're really open on social media mm-hmm. about your experiences, about going through your double mastectomy and what that means for you and what sort of message you want to share with other people that are looking at your social media about that. Yes. Um, I'm like, what question is she about to ask? What I want to ask is, <laughs> what I want to ask is, I know that you actually had a social media presence prior to all of this, didn't yes. you? Yes. So how did that evolve with then you getting your diagnosis, going through all of this? Were you sort of actually very frank and open at the time, just sharing all of this? Well, and it was sort of accidental. And I don't, I think, again, because I was so convinced that the lump was benign, as I came home, when I had gone to my GP about the lump and came home, I realized that my shirt was on inside out. (laughs) 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 I just started laughing and I just thought, this is not a like, you know, Instagram real world moment. I don't know what it is. And I'd clearly been a little bit rattled, but I just had my top off. Yeah. my breasts examined by my doctor and then put the, put the shirt on inside out and had not yeah. noticed and was walking around my day I'll life like, I'm in a hurry just yeah. to get out of the clinic. I had been very vulnerable so might as well just continue at this point. And I thought, well, I know that I've heard from women that mm. they, they worry and they'll find something that they're worried about and they don't go in. And uh-huh. so I thought, well, I'm going to just do a quick live about what, what I just did and why yeah. and what the process is, especially here in the UK, mm. to demystify it a little bit. Yeah. And in the back of my mind knowing that it was likely to be benign. Yeah. No, you know, and not even thinking not, what really is going to was very unlikely, but I want to, I want to share the experience so that people aren't yeah. so frightened. Mm. Yeah. And because I, you know, I'll talk about 
integrative medicine and lifestyle. It's a, I, I do have a component of my following is deeply distrustful of medicine. Yeah. yeah. And so the more I can build bridges and, and sort of help people understand what the process looks like. Absolutely. And what an opportunity to... And so it was sort of accidental. And then it was like, oh, okay, now I'm having a mammogram. And oh, now I'm having a biopsy. And was that then... stuff you were sharing at the time? Yes. Because you're so, so I... open on your social media. So I imagined <laughs> that you would have... So I was like, well, again, the goal is to demystify this. And I think, again, when it comes to to the medical gaze on the female body, the the more we can drag things out of shameful shadows, I think it's so important that we have to stop treating things like breast lumps mm-hmm. as some sort of dark secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think that's... You sound like Bernie Brown now. Oh, <laughs> it's so unhelpful. Uh, yes, yeah. because, because those are things we keep... Those are things that we keep hidden. Yeah. And then... And we don't talk about and yes. we don't share our stories yes. of to make other people feel like, actually, it's fine. Exactly. Can I, can I ask, when you start sharing things, obviously you get responses back. Did any of the responses that you got back surprise you in any way? Or what was like the form of people's opinion? So when I the, I did a, um, a short video on my the biopsy experience and how traumatic it had been, mm. and I my DMs were flooded, and I mean flooded as an overwhelming number of people mm-hmm. that I couldn't begin to keep track of who'd had a traumatic experience at the hands of healthcare, including doctors, mm. and that really took me by surprise. I didn't know the extent to which people have had bad experiences in healthcare because up until then I hadn't had one as a patient. Mm -hmm. And so that was the the biggest surprise I had was how many people had thought that it was okay to walk away from a a medical experience feeling Mm -hmm. really quite traumatized. And that, that came as a surprise. Um, And then it's all overwhelmingly been positive Mm -hmm. and including really gratifyingly several women who have said, actually, there's a lump I've been worried about and this has given me the confidence to go get it checked out. And I thought, Mm -hmm. well, this is what we need because it's, it's a private part of our bodies, but that doesn't mean that we should, you know, keep these hidden worries. And obviously the longer we sit on things, that's not, that's not good for anyone. Mm -mm. Not at all. No, absolutely. And I remember at med school being told the fact that women that find a breast lump that share that with a friend or with a family member or a partner sooner rather than later go and get seen quicker and things get managed quicker by someone who doesn't say anything to anybody may keep that to themselves for weeks until things may progress or you know only seek care at a much later time so exactly talking about it and not feeling ashamed or thinking of the breasts as a secretive part of your body is is yeah it's really important to change that narrative isn't it and to open up the conversation, I think, about what our breasts mean to our identity mm, yeah. as women, but also in society. I think that's a conversation that's long overdue. And I think the pendulum has swung. You know, it used to be that no one ever got breast reconstruction. Mm. And then I think we've seen, the, because we're trying to compensate for that in medicine and making sure that women do have that option, because mm. that is the right option for a lot of women, that we, we now almost push the pendulum too far the other way. Mm. Like, actually, we have to make sure that people have genuine informed choices yes yeah and are empowered to make that decision no matter what they decide and then to, to, to normalize i think body differences i mean yeah. this is a whole other conversation yeah but, i hadn't thought about this until today actually you know even it sounds really silly but one of the biggest decisions for me since my surgery has been do i wear a prosthetic breast or not mm-hmm. and it's it's uncomfortable and i you know i feel a little silly mm-hmm. yes it makes the clothes look normal mm-hmm. And that's what the, well, the, the plastic surgeon I saw. And, you know, no, any surgeons who are listening never say this to anybody ever. But <laughs> well, she he told me that I have a ter- had a terrific figure this is pre-surgery. And so his argument for having implant reconstruction was that... Let's maintain this terrific figure. Yeah. Oh, oh, God. And so I just thought, gosh, he really doesn't know me at all, does yeah. he? And so, again, there's this conception that, that's, that we have to maintain the body that social, you know, advertisements and magazines and social, like that we're told is what a normal woman's body looks like. And that's the thing, I feel like with a woman's body, so much of it is about, well, for who? Yes. For whose consumption? Yes. What about me? (laughs) Like living in the body, Mm -hmm. you know, that's such a big part of it. Mm -hmm. And especially because a reconstructed breast is numb. I mean, it's not, Mm. and that's, again, that's not talked about. And a lot of, I have a lot of women who have breast reconstruction reach out and say, actually, no one told me that I wouldn't have any sensation. Like, it's not, it's not a real breast. It's It's not until you've even said that now that I've been like, I've always assumed that 
They would be. Yes, and some of them will have some amount of skin sensation. Mm-hmm. But it's not. But even if even if the nipple is preserved, it doesn't have sense. So again, it really does become mm-hmm. like, who am I reconstructing this breast for? Oh. For whose yeah. pleasure? Absolutely. And what an important thing to tell women that are going to have that surgery. Because those things aren't without risks, like you pointed out. And yes. also there's a you know, body of evidence that will come with time to say, well, what other things might be happening with reconstructive surgeries That's that right. we don't know about because they've not been done in such numbers until now. And the implants I was offered were recalled. So the implants I said no to yeah. have since been recalled from the market. And that sort of level of, you know, again, yeah. the implant reconstruction is absolutely the right choice for many women. Mm-hmm. But I, I think this is a conversation as a society that it's, and it's helpful because then, you know, for me, the, it became very clear that actually I'm much more comfortable not wearing prosthetic breasts. I don't yeah. wear yeah. prostheses. And actually, you know, I'm tall and I'm slim and it looks okay. Yeah. But I have a new awareness now. I mean, gosh, there's a lot of people who walk around who don't have the option of wearing a prosthesis to make their body look more normal, to make everybody else more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think it's this new awareness that I have. And actually, you know what? If someone looks at me on the tube and thinks, she looks a bit funny, Mm -hmm. you know, actually, there's someone else who's going to look at me and find that reassuring and think, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's for, that for me feels like living with integrity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's such a, just even from following you on social media and meeting you, I feel like that's such a core tenet of, I feel like, how you try and live your life. Like, just trying to be really authentically yourself. Thank you. That's and such a compliment. Yeah, I really get that from you. Um, we are so short on time. I feel like we could chat forever. Yeah. Lots of people that we meet will be distrustful of healthcare mm. and our approaches to medicine. And that's even people who have been brought up in, like, Western civilizations. For those patients that we come into contact with and already feel judged by the medical profession, I also would love to hear how do we, once again, not insert our beliefs on them um, and how we can almost jump that barrier with them of just saying, look, I'm here to look after you. Um, Yeah, I'd just love to hear what your thoughts are on that. I think it comes from approaching that conversation with a place of humility because I think we are seeing, and the statistics show this, that that trust in medical institutions is has been dropping ever since the mid eighties. Mm. And, you know, alternative and holistic medicine and complementary therapies are as popular as they've ever been. Mm. And I think it's worth reminding, and I feel this as a doctor when I feel moments of frustration over something I might see online or something a patient says, is that respect is earned. Mm. And if we've lost respect as a profession, mm. that we need to take ownership of that and not blame, oh, it's because holistic providers are, are, are smelling or selling snake oil. Mm. No, it's actually because people have stopped trusting us mm. and that's on us. Mm. And so I, I tend to approach those conversations with a huge amount of humility and respect for where the other person has come from. Because as I learned from my own social media DMs, often those people have experienced really bad things. And mm-hmm. so I think I approach it from a space of listening, asking questions, honoring that person's experience. Mm-hmm. And then once you've done that, it's actually not that hard to engage in a, in a, in a, a partnership with that patient. If you've done the groundwork first of seeing them as a person honoring the experience that they have and the opinions they have and, and, and the life they've led. Again, remembering that everyone is bringing their own constructed vision mm-hmm. and everyone's looking at this through their own lens. Then it's easy not to judge someone else's lens mm-hmm. if you've seen it and, and recognized it for what it is. And then, yeah, and, and just making it very much a respectful conversation. Mm-hmm. And then I, in my experience, I don't have a hard time building that relationship. And, and I'm convinced that part of why people love, and myself included, I love getting a massage, I love going to an osteopath, like bring on the sound baths, like all of that. And I think that's because of how people feel. Yeah. You know, it's Maya Angelou, I'm paraphrasing her quote, that says people won't remember what you said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Yeah. And I think people feel cared for when they see, you know, alternative therapists, say, or complementary therapists. They feel cared for. They feel like they're their whole experience of life, not just their illness, is being recognized. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something we can learn from a medicine, that how we make people feel really matters. It's not just what we prescribe or the mm-hmm. surgery we do on their bodies, but how do we make them feel? Yeah. I think um, there was a quote from this book that I'm reading. That I can't wait to read this one. <laughs> Give it to us. <laughs> so it's... Um, the last education, guys. <laughs> Blaise Pascal, you know, he was, he was a mathematician and a physicist oh. and a theologian. Mm. 
Um, and he said that reason's last step is recognizing that an infinity of things surpass it. And I think it's worth keeping that. I think that keeps us humble and mm. keeps us honest. Mm. And medicine is recognizing what we know and what we don't know. Mm. And that even if someone has a reason for, for a different decision than we would necessarily choose for ourselves, that doesn't make it wrong. Mm. It's just their experience. Mm. <sighs> Thank yeah, you so much. You. I feel like that was a lesson in like servitude. A yeah. lesson in like humility to our patients, yeah. and I hope that conversation is useful for our listeners today. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much, much Robin. Thank you. Thank, thank you. And Robin, just to finish off, how do people like find you or engage in the work that you do? So I'm on Instagram, Facebook. Mm-hmm. <coughs> it's um at Dr. old school. <laughs> I know. I, I'm actually relatively new to Instagram. Like, in the, like it's only been two years on Instagram. Oh, I'm wow. such a dinosaur. <laughs> um, so yeah, Facebook and Instagram, Dr. Robin Fawcett. Thank you so much. Yeah. So everyone, take care. Have a great day because I'm gonna have a great day now. Bye. <laughs> bye 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 bye. Catch us over on www.afterthelettersdotcom or forward slash after the letters on every social media network. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered.